There we go. Okay, I have a topic for us today. And my reasons for choosing this topic are twofold. Uh, first of all, as I was considering which hard saying we would cover in, in this, uh, this series, the hard sayings of the Bible, it occurred to me that we've mostly covered hard sayings from Jesus himself, from the, from the Gospels. Uh, and uh, so I thought, well, if we're really going to do a hard sayings of the Bible series, we should probably look at the uh, everything in the Bible, not everything. We can't, we will be here for the rest of our lives, which is kind of the point. But uh, if we're just talking about this series right now. Um, so I could either do one of two things. I could change, just change the title of the, the series to Hard Sayings of Jesus, which there are a number of books out there by that title. And I wouldn't mind doing that. But also, I, I do think there's value in going through the rest of the Bible and exploring in the, New in the Old Testament uh, how there is the gospel in the Old Testament, the gospel that points us forward to the new. And again, for those of you that are involved in the, the, the small group and, and four group study here at the church, it's called Christ in the Shadows. That, that, that's entire, entirely what that Bible study is about. And uh, uh, if you want um, those materials, I'm glad to get those to you. But again, exploring the Old Testament in the light of Jesus. It's a fascinating study. But second, my family and I, we're trying to make our way through uh, a book of the Bible at a time, and we're nearing the end of Exodus, and, and the last part of Exodus has to do with the construction of the tabernacle. And if I'm being honest, uh, again, because it's not written in a traditional narrative style, you know, it's a lot of instructions for the people at the time, books like that are harder to get through. I've often looked at uh, like the end of Exodus and into Leviticus as the, as the devotional killers, <laughs> as the people who with good intentions start reading the Bible. I'm going to read my way through the Bible. And they, they get through all these narratives in Genesis and, and uh, even into Exodus. This is great. And then all of a sudden take 30 cubits by 20 cubits by <laughs> and like and yesterday we were reading in this part in Exodus about just the garments of the, of the priests. And it's like, whoo, that's a lot of detail. That's a lot of detail. And it gets you wondering, so how, how does that, how does that impact my life today? Is there, is there much use in what I'm reading about in Leviticus uh, for how I live my life today? Okay, uh, so for this week's hard, spang, hard saying, I want to explore just a bit the book of Leviticus, okay, the, the devotional killer itself, all right? And I want to try and frame it for you in such a way that gives you information as to why in the world this book matters to us or why it should matter to us. Because again, it's easy to get lost in the detail. It's easy to get lost in the detail of the book and try and find yourself reading a couple chapters and realizing after 30 minutes, what did I just read? <laughs> have you ever done that? You just read and for two, three, four pages, like I've not been paying attention to the own voice in my head, right? Uh, uh, now, I know y'all have been there before. I'm not, I'm not the only one. I've done it a number of times. So how about this? How many of you in here would identify the book of Leviticus as your favorite book of the Bible? Anybody? Every time I ask that question, I get zero hands up every single time. I can't wait for the day when someone raises their hand because I'm going to say, why? <laughs> Tell me what it is. Uh, how did you get there? Um, let's, uh, so uh, uh, what about this? Who, who among you just likes to read, just in general? I, just, I like to read books, whether it's fiction. I can't, some of you are raising your hand like this. <laughs> whether it's fiction, nonfiction, or, or uh, anything of the sort, uh, we could probably make our way around the room and, uh, and detail what is it you like about fiction or what does he like about this uh, type of, uh, of reading. And not one of you would say, you know what my favorite type of reading is? My favorite type of reading is instruction manuals. I love instruction manuals. Uh, I, I, I dare say none of you would identify that. Now, it's not to say that some of you won't read an instruction manual. Some of you can appreciate an instruction manual when assembling 
uh, say, a bookshelf from Ikea or something like that. I just purchased a, a brand new lawnmower the other day. And though I consider myself mechanically inclined, I know how things work, generally speaking, I still wanted to go through the instruction manual. Why? Because it, I've done this exercise before. You think I'm just going to start her up and let her rip, right? And, and go. And then you find out years later, two or three years, why is this, this lawnmower acting like a hunk of junk? Because you didn't follow the one instruction they told you, don't put this type of gas in the machine. How many of you, when you do your own lawn, you know, when you get gas for that lawnmower, you just go buy gas from the, from the gas station? Do you all do that? Yeah, he said, there's one person saying, no, I don't. I use special, you use the, the ethanol-free gasoline, right? And if you miss that instruction, your mower is going to be dead in about five years. So, so good luck with that. So anyway, manuals, you want to read the manual. There's some, there's some value to be found in, in, the, in the instruction manuals, okay? Uh, by reading the manual, uh, when you get a lawnmower or something like that, you get the thing working as it's supposed to work. But again, though, though you might appreciate what a manual will do for you, you still probably don't consider it to be your favorite type of literature, right? Well, this is what we have in the book of Leviticus. This is what we have uh, in that book. It's really an instruction manual of sorts. And if I had to guess, that's probably why many people wouldn't identify Leviticus as their favorite type of book of the Bible, because no one would say, my favorite book is the Honda Lawnmower Manual. No one ever says that because it's along the same lines. In a sense, it's like reading an instruction manual that was directed toward a people who engage in a practice that we don't really observe today in, in, this, in the same manner. And if that's the case, what good is it? You know, if, if, if what we find in the book of Leviticus is a manual for worship in, in the tabernacle specifically is what it was going into, why do we need it today when everything that's instructed to do in the, in the temple and in the tabernacle and all those things, we don't observe those things today. So why do we need it? Well, that's what I hope to tell you about in the next 25 minutes or so. But if you, again, if you back up from Leviticus and the last part of Exodus, right before Leviticus, it ends with a description on how the tabernacle was to be built. And that's a lot of detail. There's so much intricate detail in there as to its construction. Again, they keep, and it almost seems repetitive, you know, yarn of, of, of purple and gold and threads of this and, and, uh, and uh, you know, coating of gold and silver and bronze. And it just goes on for a while. And, and, and again, uh, because there, there's so much detail there, because if God was to dwell amongst his people, that was the point of the tabernacle. The point of the tabernacle was that God would dwell in the midst of his people. He said, if this is how it's going to be, if, if I'm going to dwell with you, it must be done in holiness. It must be done in holiness. It would have to be done according to the way that he prescribes. So Leviticus is basically a continuation of that second part of Exodus. And the last 15 chapters of Exodus were devoted to the building of the tabernacle. And then the entire content of Leviticus was given less than a month after the construction of the tabernacle. And, and the theme of Leviticus could be summarized uh, in one verse that's found in that book. And it says this. This is Leviticus 20, verse 7. Now, for those of you online, I know you can't see that very well. Consecrate yourselves, it says. Leviticus 27, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Again, if we had to boil the, the sentiment of the entire book down to one phrase, that would be it in a nutshell. It's as if he's saying, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart. Set yourselves apart. Be holy. Why? Because I, the Lord, am holy. And if I'm going to be in your midst, there's only one way that this is going to work. You have to be holy, like me. 
be holy for I am holy. Now, let me ask you this. Who wants to take a stab at this? What does it mean to be holy? Does someone know that could offer us up a, a basic definition? What does it mean to be holy? You're told to be holy. You're told to be holy, okay? As well as, well as the fact that you're being made holy. What does that mean? Set apart. Set apart. That's very specific language. Set apart. Okay, it, it, it basically means separate. It comes from the ancient word uh, that, that means to cut or to separate. You know, the same way, I don't know if you were, uh, I don't know, cutting a, a, a big chunk of beef, I don't know, and you wanted to separate it. You're separating the fat from the meat. You, you, you cut it to separate it. So have that image in your mind uh, to cu cut apart. So in other words, you know, the way that it was used in that ancient context uh, it would be a cut apart or a cut above something. When you find something that's far and away better than anything else that you can compare it to, you say it's a cut above the rest. You know, you, we've used that in our own vernacular. So that's a good working definition of holy. Separateness, separateness, okay, cut above. However, remember, when we're talking about God's holiness, we're not just talking about garden variety holiness, if I could say that. Upon seeing the Lord high and lifted up in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, what were the angels flying all around? What were they singing? You know this, this, uh, this hymn. They were singing, holy, holy, holy. Three times holy. Very intentional. It wasn't just that they had no other words to sing or couldn't think of anything else. They were placing emphasis upon emphasis upon emphasis. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Set apart, set apart of set apart. A cut above, a cut above of a cut above. That's how far holy he is. And even that doesn't do it justice. Okay, so when the Lord tells his people to be holy, be holy for I am holy, how are they supposed to do that? The book of Leviticus says, here's what you need to do. Start with this. And then you have 27 chapters which outline exactly what you have to do to approach the Lord in holiness. 27 chapters. And it's that the Lord is saying the standard is much higher than you realize. 27 chapters. Okay? So what's the Lord doing here? Why does it take 27 chapters for the Lord to tell us how holy he is? Can he just tell us, hey, look, I'm not just holy. I'm not just holy, holy. I'm holy, holy, holy. You get it? And why can't we just say, yeah, I get it. Would we get it if that's all he did? No, no, we'd, we'd still miss it. We still wouldn't get the idea of it. I don't think we get it. So again, 27 chapters of Leviticus, isn't God just telling us how holy he is? In a sense, he's showing us how holy he is. He's showing us, okay? That, that, this, is, this is not unusual. We need this. To understand the depth and gravity of something, it can't just be imparted to us through words alone. Uh, for instance, if you're, if you're training to be a surgeon, how many manuals are there and instruction books and textbooks are there about surgery that you'd have to read, but are you going to learn how to be a surgeon after just reading the textbooks on how to perform surgery? No, you can't do it. You won't be able to do it. Same thing with uh, flying an airplane. How many of you would, <laughs> would trust an airplane pilot to say, you know, I've read a lot of textbooks about this. Come on, let's, let's get on the plane. I think I got this. Would you get on the plane? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And I dare say you could read 27 chapters on how to parallel park a car 
bring it down back down to earth. How many of you of reading all the words there is about parallel parking a car think you'd be able to, I got it. I got it now and I got it on the first try. It's not until you get that car and put it between two cones and then uh, and figure out now I know how to do it after I've read all the words, okay? I remember the, uh, the first time my brother legally drove a car. My dad, uh, when we were, we were young, he would, he would often put us in his lap and he would let us drive around the parking lot. And then sometimes he would even take us out of his lap and just plop us in the seat if it was a wide open area and say, all right, let's go. You know, and he'd be in the passenger seat, of course, and, and he'd let us drive along very, very slowly. But when my, my, when my brother uh, got his driver's permit when he was 15, the very first time he got behind the wheel legally on, on the real road, he was getting ready to, to pull out of the, the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, newly minted driver's license in hand, legally. And my dad says, okay, easy, easy. It, it was a manual, so he had to let the clutch out. And he did that. <laughs> he got a little too stiff and he popped the clutch and he literally peeled out as he's pulling out of the DMV. I can't imagine a more ironic scene than this. Okay, you're safe to drive now, thanks. If he's squealing out of the, out of the, uh, out of the uh, into the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, he's screeching out of the DMV into the turning lane, the center turning lane. Again, my dad told him everything he had to do. He learned everything that he had to learn in the instruction manual, but it wasn't until he started getting behind the wheel itself that he really learned how to drive a car, okay? All the coaching, all the studying, all the test taking did little to prepare my brother for actually getting behind the wheel and merging on to Atlanta, uh, to an Atlanta highway. Again, it would be one thing for the Lord to tell his people to be holy. It would even be another thing to detail for them word by word, expression by expression, what it means to be holy. He could define for his people all day long what it means to be holy. But for them to really begin to understand what it meant to be holy, he wanted them to experience it, to put an experience along with the words to do these things, I'm gonna to prescribe to you the actions here because so not only do you get a, a, a verbal picture, but you get, this is what we do when we do the sacraments. Do you realize that? It, it's almost, almost like a, a picture, uh, an, a live action picture, body and blood of Christ. It's different. It communicates something different when you have something tangible in your hands that you can sort of hear and see and taste the words that have been spoken to you in scripture, okay? Because on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, here, here you have Leviticus, 27 chapters of, of laws, rules, codes of conduct, guidelines. And, and when you got to that 27 chapters, how, how easy do you think it was for them to, to understand that and then start living it out? Do you think it was easy? No, I dare say it was impossible. It was impossible, an impossible task. Now, why on earth would God give them such a hard correction, impossible task? Because again, on the one hand, they needed to understand God's holiness, but on the other hand, they'd be made aware of their own sinfulness too. Just like understanding holiness, it's one thing to tell the people you're sinful, you're a sinful people, but it's quite another, not quite another thing altogether to be able to experience, have an experience for how sinful, to experientially understand that they're sinful people, to be able to see, to touch and taste and, and feel the burn of sinfulness. And then maybe in experiencing it, Maybe in experiencing holiness and maybe through experiencing sinfulness and seeing actual live pictures that you can touch, touch, taste, and see, and you see suddenly the stark difference between holiness and sinfulness, then maybe, maybe you start to get a, 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 a picture or a better understanding, a deeper understanding for the, the, the cataclysmic disparity that exists between sinfulness and holiness.
by seeing it in pictures, by touching and tasting and seeing and, and feeling it, okay? This is why there's so much painstaking detail in Leviticus, not just on how to live, but how to worship, how to approach the living God and what a big deal it is to do that. Does that make sense? Again, it's, it's, think of it like, like we do uh, communion. Think of it like we do baptism. It's, it's a live action picture of, of what we're trying to communicate with, with more than just words, okay? So in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, we have detailed for us five different types of sacrifice offerings. And what I wanna do is consider the first one of those five. We don't have time to do one. Uh, the first of those five, um, because in the Old Testament, what we have there is we always should try and see, this is true for every book of the Bible, as I told you about earlier, the, the object here is, is not just to read the instructions and not even to just try and put yourself in the shoes of, of the Israelites who would read these books and, and try and experience, but, but also to see how, how does this point me to Jesus? How does all these instructions, do all these instructions and, and, uh, and detail, how does it point me to Jesus? And when you start to see that, when you start to really realize that, suddenly the book of Leviticus takes on a whole new different meaning, a whole different understanding when you see this, because now you start reading it differently, because you say, this is meant to point me to Jesus. I see that now, okay? Now, having said that, one of the most important principles for the worshiper to understand both the New and Old Testaments is the idea of substitution. Very critical, very critical to understand the idea of substitution. If you don't understand this, if you don't understand this principle, it's not a stretch to, to say that you might not understand the rest of the Bible if you don't understand the principle of substitution, okay? Uh, because for some of us, it's not an idea that's taught to us early on in our Christian walk, so, so we just kind of miss it. So for instance, when we start teaching our kids, I thought about that as, 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 uh, as we were seeing these first communicants up there at, at the worship today, you know, when we start asking them questions like, do you know what it means to be saved? Uh, when we start asking the questions like that, because we want our children to be saved, right? What does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? When you say, are you saved from what? What am I, what am I being saved from? How, how would you explain that to a child or a young believer? When you want to know, are you saved? Saved from what? Does someone want to throw something out there? When we talk about being saved, what is it that we are being saved from? Saved from what? If every one of you, most of you, I would say, you'd probably raise your hand. Yes, I am saved. From what? Say again. Slavery of sin. You're slave from the bondage of sin. Okay. Someone else has something? That's an excellent answer. Saved from eternal death. Saved from what? Saved from myself, from my own undoing, right? Okay, anyone else? Anything else to offer? Saved from what you deserve. And what do you, what do you deserve? Death. Saved from death, all right? Now, how do you explain that to a child? You know, what is it that we want the child to understand? In the last hundred years or so, we've become accustomed to saying something along the lines of, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Okay. And again, I'm not, not dogging that, but it doesn't get at the nature of, of where, what we want them to understand. Do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Because it sounds great, but what, it, what does it mean? And what does that sound like when you communicate that to a 40-year-old adult? Do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? What for? Well, you know, if you ask Jesus into your heart, 
you know, you, you ask Jesus in, into your heart and you're asking him to be Lord of your life, that he would help you and guide you and steer you in making the right direction and, and, and making the right choices and pleasing him. And the 40 year old might tell you, why do I want that? I feel like I'm doing okay as it is. I don't need anyone else guiding me or directing me or, or pushing me along. But again, if we talk about being saved, that's a different conversation. When you start understanding what you're saved from, okay, if you simply are asking Jesus to come into your heart and that's what you're explaining to people, it can fall apart real fast, real fast. Here's what we told our kids when they were young. Let's see if this is something we can build upon into, into adulthood. We told our kids something like this. Whenever you do something wrong, whenever you lie, or, or if you say something mean to your brother, whatever it is that you do wrong, whenever you disobey, uh, we're painting a picture of unholiness here, painting a picture of unholiness. You should be punished for that, we would tell them. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was taking your punishment for you. Okay. It, it was like the biggest, we would tell them, it was like the biggest spanking that was meant to go on you. And instead, Jesus said, I'll take it. I'll take it. Don't punish him. Punish me instead. I'll take his punishment. You see, at the root of that is the concept of substitution. Now, what we tried to instill in them, and again, this is what, what the adult would need to know too, is that Christ served as your substitute. Punishment meant for you is placed on him. I remember when my son was much younger, he was into collecting trading cards. Uh, they were uh, part of a, a game. I guess it's a game, right? Pokemon? Is that, is that a game? And, uh, and like all trading cards, there were some that were more rare than others. And if you would somehow buy a pack of cards and that pack, you would stumble across in it a card that ha that's, that's rare and valuable, you've stumbled on a, a good thing, all right? This works the same way with baseball cards, football cards. Again, there's, there's certain ones that they only make one or two of, and if you find that, man, okay, now, now you've really stumbled on something good. So anyway, my son was into collecting these cards, and he was hoping to get one card in particular that was really rare. No matter how many times he'd buy a pack, he'd save up his own money, buy a pack, look at him and say, I already have all these cards. It doesn't have the one that I want. It doesn't have the specific one that I'm looking for. Well, one day, uh, I don't know how, how old he was. He's probably you know eight or nine or something like that. He's looking on on uh, looking for that card on eBay, and he found it. Okay, and uh, that's good news. And it wasn't terribly unreasonable. I think it's maybe around twenty bucks or something like that. And that but that was significant. Twenty bucks was significant for an eight or nine year old. And uh, and again, just spending eight dollars or twenty dollars for an eight year old that that was that's significant. That's a significant port, uh, portion of their net worth. Okay, it'd be like. <laughs> I don't know how much was in his piggy bank at the time, but I liken it to me giving up my house for something because that's, that's how much uh, by comparison. Uh, but again, this is something he'd wanted for a long time, the elusive collector's card that he couldn't acquire through any other means. So he asked me if he could buy it. He would use my eBay ID and he would give me the money from his piggy bank. Okay. Now, I want you to know, I understand the risks here. And I even explained the risks to him. Do you, do you think it might possibly be a fake? And he says, oh no, it says it's real. Okay, so he bought it, and it arrived. He opened it. He was so excited to see it, and guess what? Total fake. <laughs> and he knew it right away. That was the thing. He opened it up, and he saw it. And as soon as he saw it, he knew it was a fake. He knew it. He knew it, and he was devastated. He was devastated. Like, he, he, he gave away his money for this, and it's, it's a total fake. So guess what I did? Did I give him the $20 back, or did I make him suffer for it? It's funny how some of you think <laughs> he's a mean dad. I know. I, I know what his, I gave him his, I gave him his $20 back. I did it. I'm a good dad, aren't I? 
Here's the point I'm making. In the end, did this transaction cost something? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. It cost, it cost me 20 bucks. What did it cost my son? In the end, nothing at all, right? He incurred the cost. I shouldered the weight of it. But what I want you to realize is that the cost didn't go away. The cost didn't go away. The cost was displaced. The cost went from my son to me. It was displaced on me. And, and when you sin, and this is in term, we're talking about substitution here, and this is really important for you to understand. When you sin, the cost of that sin never goes away. It never goes away. The punishment for that sin never, ever goes away. It's displaced. You see that? Now, the next natural question might be asked when hearing about a sub substitution is, why does there have to be punishment at all? Why does there have to be punishment at all? Why does, why does God need to punish, punish sin? God is perfect, right? Is God perfect? Yes, absolutely perfect. All right? And if God is perfect, he is also perfectly, who can fill it in for me? Just. He's also perfectly just. And if he's perfectly just, that means he can't ignore sin. He can't ignore it. He can't ignore injustice. Sin, as if it were on a balance sheet, must be accounted for. It can't just go away. It has to be dealt with. It has to be placed somewhere. He can't just pretend it didn't happen. It has to go somewhere. This is what perfect justice demands. This is why when someone gets away with a crime and they get off scot-free, what do we say? We proclaim, where is the justice? Because that in that situation, it's absence of justice. We want a God who accounts for injustice every single time without fail. We want a God that does that. So as we scroll back through the pages of the Old Testament, the idea of animal sacrifice might seem a little far removed from us. It might seem like it just doesn't have any application for us today. In fact, it might even, it might even seem a little bit over the top. Animal sacrifice, really? That seems like something they would do in, I don't know, some ancient religion that, that is so far removed from anything that we understand now. Why would God, our perfectly holy, righteous, omnipotent God, make use of something like animal sacrifice? Okay, we're coming full circle now. It allowed them to experience something that words alone couldn't communicate. And that is an understanding of this idea of substitution. Your sin has to go somewhere. Your sin has to be transferred somewhere. It can't be just disappear. It has to go from you to something else, to someone else. Okay, it creates a visible experiential understanding that instead of paying the penalty for your sin, God would accept a substitute in your place. And as you experience this act visibly and experientially took it in, hopefully you come to the realization of, this should be me. This should be me. I'm, I'm the one that deserves to die. But instead, this animal is becoming my substitute. This animal has died. Listen to the whispers of the gospel here. This animal has died. This lamb has died so that I could live. God's wrath has been displaced. That's what you're saved from. And, and what a relief that must be for them, you know, to, in, in understanding in the moment that death, death that was meant for you was placed elsewhere, was put onto something else. Justice was displaced and, 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 and sent elsewhere so that it wouldn't be placed on you. And that's what we're talking about when we mean something when we talk about substitution. 
Okay, now with just a little bit of time that we have left, I'm gonna have to hustle through this. Let's look at that first of the five offerings outlined in Leviticus. This is Leviticus 1, 4 to 5. It says this. And now try and try and keep the picture. Try and imagine the picture of what this is hap- what's happening in the moment and what this communicates to us in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the long term, the old test in the New Testament. This is Leviticus 1, 4 to 5. It says this. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, making establishing a connection, okay? And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's son, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent making. Again, if you're just trying to make your way through the Bible and you stumble across this, you're like, what? <laughs> What's happening here? Again, fast forward to the New Testament, and look, look what this is forecasting, what this is foreshadowing. Because what we're seeing here described for us is a burnt offering. And let's detail a bit more and see if you can hear additional foreshadowing of Christ. Listen care, carefully here. To make atonement for sin and to gain God's acceptance, the people identified, identified themselves with the animal by laying their hand on the animal's head. They literally made a connection with the animal. It's as if the, the, the person and the animal are... Are, are, are one, okay? When the animal died, it died for their sins. Again, a substitutionary act. The burnt offering is what might be described as the most costly offering because it was, it was completely burned up, except, this is what you'll read here, except for the animal's covering. The animal's covering was spared. It was preserved and given to the priest, the one who officiated over the sacrifice. The Israelites would, would bring a bull, a sheep, or a goat, uh, a male with no defect. It had to be the best. It had to be without defect. You couldn't bring the run to the litter. You had to bring the best one. And then it would be killed at the entrance of the tabernacle. It was a gruesome display. So once again, the Israelites could experience the gruesome nature of sin. And it was all but consumed before God. It, it was a sacrifice that commuted the idea that, that the person acknowledged their sin and they were making a request to be renewed before God. Now, how does that foreshadow Christ? What detail do you hear there? Again, start at the top. When the animal died, it died for their sins. Why did Christ die? Christ died for your sins. When, when they sacrificed the animal, they placed their hand on the head of the animal and identified with the animal, had a connection with the animal. When Christ died, you identified with Christ. He wasn't like a man. In every respect, he was a man. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So like the Israelites who placed their hand on the sacrifice to connect with the animals, to identify with it, you too, you identify with Christ. You connect with Christ. Christ was made like you in every respect. Now listen to this, and I may have to close with this, but the animal when they sacrificed was completely consumed except for his covering. Christ on the cross, his life was completely consumed. His life was completely removed from humanly speaking, physically speaking. And what became of his covering? What became of his clothes? Matthew 27, 35. This gives me chills when I think about it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. How many times have you read that and just thought, that's just another detail in the story? That's just another part of the story. His clothes, 
His covering was distributed amongst those who officiated over his sacrifice. That sounds like something we just read in Leviticus. Just as the skin of the animal, the covering of the animal was distributed amongst those who officiated over the sacrifice, the same thing occurred with Christ as he hung on the cross. His covering was preserved and distributed. Do you suppose those that divided up his clothes and his covering, do you suppose they knew they were fulfilling a prophecy in that moment? Do you suppose they knew that? I bet they didn't. But isn't it neat to read that in Leviticus that this would happen and then see it happen in, in the New Testament too? That's astounding. They had no idea they were fulfilling prophecy. And not only were they fulfilling prophecy, but think of the symbolic message being communicated there as well. Why in Leviticus would God require such seemingly in, in, in insignificant detail? Why save the covering? The sacrifice provided a covering. Why? Perhaps to foreshadow the covering that Christ provides you. You are provided with a covering. And most importantly, like the burnt offering, Christ's sacrifice atoned for our sin and restored our relationship with God. What the burnt offering communicated was, yes, restoration, atonement, but not brought by an animal. Rather, the animal, the sacrifice in Leviticus, pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would bring about restoration and atonement. You see the parallels there? It's just, it's forecasting. It's foreshadowing in Leviticus, what would happen in the New Testament. And again, you could do this all day long with every single one of the, the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament and see point by point, how does this foreshadow? How does this, how does this give me a foretaste of, of what Christ would do in the New Testament? And again, when you start reading through books like Leviticus with, it, with eyes for the New Testament, suddenly it takes on a whole different meaning. It, it brings on a whole new life and say, I get it now. I, I see why it's there. And, and the wonderful thing is, is that most of the time, you're going to miss this. You're going to miss it. And the fact that you have eyes to see it now, the fact that you can open up the, the words of the scripture and see it now is a gift from the spirit, that you have the ability to open up the word of God in the Old Testament and make a connection with the new. Let me tell you something. Most of the world doesn't get to see that. The scales have been taken from your eyes and your eyes have been opened to the miracle that is the word of God. You get to do that. You get to do that when most of the world doesn't get to experience that. That makes me want to fall to my knees and thank the good Lord that I get to do that. That's a miracle. That's a miracle right there. And again, so anytime you read to the Old Testament, as boring as it may seem, stop and ask yourself, why is this here? How is this pointing me to Jesus? Because it does. It does. Every single time it does. And, and uh, it's 1052. Let me see. Are there any questions or thoughts or comments that you want to make before we're dismissed? I can tell it's time to get dismissed because the children start getting rowdy next door. So anyone have a question or a comment or anything? Yes, Brince. Yeah. Brince is saying it gets in the feeling that we really undervalue the word forgiveness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Brent is making the comment here that, uh, you know, sometimes if we're running late for coffee or something like that with someone, we'd say, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm running late. And we kind of dismiss it as, as if it has no value. There's no punitive element to it. But what he's also saying is that every 
every transaction that requires forgiveness has a, a value associated with it that's coming at a cost for something. I can't even remember what I was thinking about this, but it was this week. I was thinking anything worth doing, anything valuable comes at a cost. Anything valuable comes at a cost. So, so there's nothing that is just free. And the same thing is applicable for forgiveness. You know, if, if you've incurred a debt to something, it's not free. Someone somewhere somehow has to pay for it. And again, next time, next time I'm running five minutes late, I'm going to really think, well, what did it just cost that person, right? Thank God for grace. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm sorry I did that. Just knocked over my coffee mug. Someone else? Comment? Yes, sir. The importance of blood. Without the shedding of blood, this is from Hebrews chapter nine, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Again, that's another element. That's another element that we see revealed in the New Testament that has been told us over and over again. Why blood? Without blood, without the cost of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's amazing. Yes, sir. Someone else? Just one thing. The price has been paid already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The price has been paid, and it's a, and sometimes we get this. Uh, a dean was telling us that uh, that along that the price has been paid for forgiveness, uh, and that it's under that uh, that umbrella of of grace, and that we will we all will have to face judgment. That may come as a startling surprise. I mean, all of us will have to face judgment. All of us. I could just leave that there, but I'm not. <laughs> but those of us who are in Christ get to point to Christ and say, for every careless word that I've said, for every careless word that I've deed, he has shouldered the cost. He has paid the price. And therefore, no condemnation, no condemnation exists for me because the cost that I incurred has been shouldered by Christ himself. That's, that's beautiful. I love that. Love that picture. All right. Unless someone else had something else, let me go ahead and close in prayer. It gives you four minutes to hurry to the sanctuary for those of you running late. I'm sorry for running late. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the picture that your word paints for us that sin has to go somewhere. And instead of allowing us to just try and attempt to shoulder that on our own, you gave us perfect representation in Jesus Christ, who took our penalty, who took our, our debt, and, uh, and shouldered that cost. And Father, you didn't just leave it there too. Not only did you shoulder our debt, but you also gave us righteousness in Christ. And because of his perfect righteousness, that's draped over us as a covering. And that allows us to be made perfectly acceptable before you right this moment. We thank you for that. Help us to shape, uh, help, help that thought to shape our, our, our actions and our words and everything that we do this week. Uh, go before us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Have a great week.